0: Matters of Life and Death a podcast from Premier Unbelievable
1: Well hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death uh, As always I'm Tim White and I'm joined by my dad John White Hi dad Hi Tim and so today, uh, as the, as you may have guessed from reading the title of this episode, we're going to be taking a little look back at the coronavirus pandemic. Not anyone's favourite time in their life, I suspect, not a, not a fond thing to reflect on. But that's almost the point, really, that, that we wanted to to go back and explore some of the, the ethical, medical, social, spiritual questions that were thrown up by COVID, by that strange two to three year period in our lives. And kind of with the benefit of a bit of hindsight, 18, 20 whole months on really, since the worst of it, how do we feel about some of the questions we were asking um, and some of the the issues that were thrown up during that time? Because we actually started this podcast in the midst of the first lockdown. People who joined us maybe a bit later might not know that. But yeah, the first year or so, all we really talked about was COVID, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it, it's still very vivid in my mind that uh, those initial weeks when... Um, suddenly it just seemed as though this so-called existential crisis was hitting uh, not only the nation but the world and um we were glued to um to the daily briefings coming from downing street with uh, the prime minister and the uh, the head of of science and public health Um, it it was a remarkable time it it was I was pinching myself particularly as I had always been interested in the history of uh, plagues and pandemics and in particular how Christians had responded in those early centuries and it was like suddenly it was almost surreal having talked about those early plagues you know I'd I'd always thought yeah but it's never going to happen in my lifetime and lo and behold here it was.
1: Yeah there's something remarkable about that that you know, and you can see this is all published documents that, you know, the governments around the world, I think the UK one here, they have a kind of a risk register of and a a kind of deadly infectious disease pandemic has been number one on the risk register of kind of like crises that could befall the UK for, for decades. And so in simultaneously, everyone knew it was coming. And yet at the same time, people were entirely unprepared, somehow, which has all been unfolded through the COVID inquiry we have here in the UK. But anyway, so, so, what we wanted to do really was, what was remarkable about that time was that, you know, in 2019, no one had ever heard the word COVID, and then for a two years or so, it was all everyone ever talked about. And then since about last year, 2022, no one wants to talk about it anymore, and we you don't hear it. Hardly anyone can discussing lockdowns or vaccines or statistics or public health or or any of PPE. All of these ideas, mask wearing, all of this stuff that transfixed the public conversation in the church and without for years has just disappeared off the table and so what we want to do in this episode and maybe another one afterwards is to look back at some of those issues that were raised and just kind of take a second look at them with the benefit of hindsight and a bit more time a bit more data's come in and think about how we did uh, as christians as societies uh, and and what we might have learned from that experience
0: yeah and it's particularly interesting isn't it to look back at our own podcasts and say you know what did we say that we need to now eat our words? Uh, hmm. What did other people say that they got completely wrong? Uh, but like you, I'm I'm quite surprised at how little discussion uh, in general is going on. I mean, here in the UK, there is a big public inquiry um, when and people giving evidence. So that's getting a certain amount of profile, isn't it? But apart from that, it's almost as though people just want to move on it was it's so painful it's so um distressing to have to go back we we just don't want to think about it we want to get on with our life we want to pretend it never happened
1: yeah i think that's my my take as well is that nobody enjoyed that period of time nobody had a good time no, nobody wants to go back and so People are just so relishing, you know, normality returning and being able to get out there and go to people's houses without having to wear masks and, you know, all this stuff and not having to think about infection, fatality rates and all this, you know, this new social distancing, all this language that we picked up. I think people are so so relishing the return of normality that it's almost like you know they don't want to even say the word it's it's a you don't want to jinx it you know suddenly the normal life feels way more fragile than ever did before and i think people don't want to risk even talking about covid feels too kind of psychologically risky
0: (laughs) that's it's wonderful magical thinking isn't it you know here we are supposedly you know scientific illiterate uh well-educated people. And the most important thing is we don't jinx it. You know, if you say everything's fine, uh, there's going to be... Everything's going
1: to be fine, <laughs> <laughs> if only.
0: But, uh, yeah, I've just returned from a trip to uh, Tanzania for a big Christian medical conference. And, again, I was just struck. The airports were all absolutely humming. The flights I was on had a 100% uh occupancy, you know, no spare seats at all. Everything is packed. Everybody is trying to uh, to travel and to get on with life and just pretend that COVID has gone away and it hasn't really changed our lives. Hmm.
1: And I remember at the time during the pandemic, a lot of people saying, making these sweeping predictions, you know, life will never be the same again. You know, this is never coming back. This is going to change forever. And I remember at the time thinking like, mm, I'm not entirely convinced. And actually what but kind of one of the top lessons I've taken away from it's actually the incredible resilience and stickiness of, of normality and people's desperation to live in normal times. And actually, as you say, international air travels come back, you know, offices are reopening and, you know, people have come back to church in, in person, you know, all these things that people were convinced would, were, were, were never coming back. Amazingly. They all sprung back incredibly quickly.
0: Um, Yeah. And yet uh, I think what the evidence shows is that really that, are still uh, really serious consequences of covid still going on and Mm. uh, i was very struck by a review in the economist magazine um just a few weeks ago um, where it was just summarizing the evidence um of, of what what had happened with with covid and their the headline figures were that the officially recognised deaths due to COVID across the world were 6.9 million. But in reality, there were excess deaths of somewhere between 17 and 30 million, with with the average figure being 24 million. So a massive uh, increase in deaths across the world. And um, what's fascinating is that that, And tragic is that they reckon that um, the majority of those excess deaths have been in poor and middle income countries, and that they still continue. It's across the world, the economist estimates there's an excess of 3.5 million deaths carrying on each year. Hmm. And that's about 5% above kind of
1: pre-COVID levels. So, you know, you know, in kind of simple terms, we expected there to be approximately uh you know 58 60 million people dying every year globally and at the moment there are actually more like 63 64 million people dying every year
0: yes so the the economist magazine has this very simple but striking uh graph showing rising uh levels um massively peaking during the of deaths massively peaking during the pandemic but then only coming down partially and and so we're left with this mystery of, of very significant number of excess deaths which despite the fact everyone's persuading themselves you know we're getting back to normal everything's okay actually under the surface it's clear that things are not okay. Do we have any idea what is causing are
1: these people literally dying of Covid itself or is it more complicated than that? Well it's
0: it's clearly very complicated and The problem is that uh, it's very difficult to unpick precisely what what is going on. But it it seems to be a combination of some people dying uh, because COVID exacerbated existing conditions. Uh, So if you had multiple disability, if you had things like diabetes and chronic pulmonary problems, and then you got COVID, you're, you were often then left with increased disability and now those people, mainly elderly, are dying uh, faster than you would anticipate. Uh, sadly, because most of these deaths are in low-resource countries, it's quite likely that uh, a very significant number are people dying of COVID, but it's almost like they're lost in because there are so many people dying of other conditions like TB and HIV and malaria and so on. Uh, and they only just come out in the overall statistics. But And then there are other things. So, so people dying of other conditions which didn't get treated. So be, because of the lockdown, because health services were overwhelmed, people were, had late diagnosis for cancer and for other uh, potentially treatable diseases. And so they're now dying as a result of the the fact that the they didn't receive the care they could have got um, and then I think probably economics as well that you know that the the effect of the the lockdown and everything else you know really damaged some economies around the world and now we're seeing increased deaths because of um, economic disadvantage and so on so it's a very complex mix but there's no doubt that we are still as a as a as a global, Community, we are still paying the price of COVID. Yeah,
1: um, it's interesting you talk about kind of strain in the NHS. That was a really massive theme, if you remember, in the first lockdown here in the UK, where the kind of initial public health response—well, the initial public health response was to kind of slightly minimise it and just focus on washing your hands and you know coughing into your elbow, uh, because they were kind of using their kind of pandemic flu plan. Um, uh, and then once they realised actually. <laughs> That was, going to be, that was going to be way too insufficient and people would die in their millions. They kind of pivoted rapidly and chaotically to this hard lockdown using this very memorable slogan of stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. Um, which, I mean, I was just saying before, I think, it's, you know, whatever we think of the merits of the policy, it's an incredibly effective piece of public communication. And it kind of summarises the, the call to action and then two reasons why to do that in six seven words, and it was kind of burned into our memories. It was on those government podiums, isn't it? On the nightly COVID briefing broadcast live, and and um, yeah, it, it is incredibly. I have incredibly vivid memories of those few months, early
0: months. It is very interesting and uh, quite uh, shrewd um, a slogan because you know in many countries it was simply stay at home, save lives. Mm. But uh, it was a really Clever insight into the British character. That um, protecting the NHS would be just as motivating as as saving lives, Mm. and um, and of course that also coincided then with this remarkable um, weekly event of celebrating (laughs) the NHS.
1: Gosh, yeah, clap for carers, clap clap for carers, and I can remember
0: again, it was quite remarkable because you know we live in central london with um, in, in and where often your neighbours are moving and changing and you don't get to know many of your neighbours at all well but actually in those weekly events you know people would come out into the streets and we'd all be, and people would be clapping in windows and we'd wave at one another and we'd banging saucepans it was actually quite a remarkable yeah. uh, community uh, solidarity a sense that you know we're all in this together and I also remember uh, people putting notices through doors and saying, "If anyone's elderly here, just let me know and we'll we can do some shopping for you and uh you know again, I mean quite remarkable for for London for that kind of sense of community solidarity, yeah, and that that reminds me of you know the
1: reporting around the lockdowns was that you know, part of the reason the UK government delayed going into lockdown by a week or two is because one, it was such a kind of a radical, far reaching lever to pull that they'd never really planned for it in all the pandemic preparation. It was never in any of the kind of uh, procedures because it was just presumed to be too far reaching, too radical, too authoritarian. And also they were told by their kind of behavioural psychologists that, uh, that people wouldn't stick to the rules that people would very quickly within a week or two get tired and bored of lockdown and start to break it and and go and see people and, and kind of leave their homes. And so there was a fear it wouldn't be very effective and and you only had a short window in which it would work. And so they delayed, hoping that they would, you know, only have to like use this kind of, you know, the nuclear option of a lockdown for a few weeks at the height of the pandemic before they were kind of forced into it eventually in late March again what is remarkable is that the behavioral psychologists and you know the government's experts were totally and utterly wrong and that compliance yeah. was unbelievably high even though the lockdown went on for 3 or 4 months
0: yeah and that was very again very interesting isn't it that um that the government completely failed to predict the the strength of community solidarity that there would be mm. um and it, and it was a combination of factors wasn't it this uh very interesting how community uh pressure uh to comply you know so so if you're aware that you're behaving in a way that the majority of people disapprove of uh that uh, you, you know that's a very powerful social force and 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 of course that also happened they've had political repercussions because as it gradually uh, emerged that uh, in number 10 Downing Street parties and various things were going on while the rest of the country was was uh, very uh, effectively following lockdown rules. Uh, th- this led to a great deal of public outrage. Hmm. And you can see the time hasn't dulled
1: that, you know, with every round of media coverage we've had about our former prime minister and his his partying in in, in Number Ten Downing Street during lockdowns, um, you know, you, there's a rush a rash of people kind of coming forward and saying, "Well, on that night, while he was getting and him and his staff were getting so drunk, they were you know vomiting into the bin and things to celebrate someone leaving the office or something like that." Um, I was uh, not allowed to go and be at the death the deathbed of my of my mum as she died alone of COVID in a care home or I was celebrating, you know, I was going to the funeral of a loved one and I was only allowed four other guests and everyone else had to watch online. You know, people feel this kind of white hot outrage about the lack of solidarity because they did their part. They made unbelievable sacrifices for the greater good at huge cost. And, um, and our leaders who were on ones on standing up on, in those podiums uh, on TV, telling us to stay at home uh, and be socially distanced and wear masks were flagrantly disregarding their own rules.
0: Yes, and, and um, a, a great deal was made of the comparison between the, our political leaders and the Queen, wasn't it? That the, mm. the Queen, even at the um, the funeral of her beloved husband, uh, was maintaining strict social distancing, um, yeah. and and the 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 how important, therefore, the symbolism of our leaders being seen to be carrying along themselves the same uh, restrictions as the rules that everyone else is having to live by.
1: Yeah. One of the things we talked a lot about in those days, um, increasingly after the first lockdown, as the kind of years went on, was what came to be known as long COVID. So people experiencing various kinds of symptoms um, long after the virus has kind of technically left their body and and they're supposed to when after the period when most people have recovered. You know, uh, and and these symptoms obviously would would vary enormously from brain fog and pain and fatigue, breathing respiratory problems, neurological stuff, things that kind of resembled autoimmune conditions. Huge variety. Um, that that was. I remember there was a lot of concern that this was going to be a kind of permanently disabling thing. Um, what do we think about long COVID now, with a bit of hindsight? Was it was
0: that overblown? Do you think? Well. I don't think it was, really. I think what's interesting is there have been a number now of of, uh, very detailed and uh, well-constructed reviews of all the evidence, and and there is a vast amount of evidence. I mean, huge numbers of papers have been uh, published, studies undertaken, and, uh, again, it's quite striking. Um, uh, A review in the Lancet magazine not long ago said that 45% of covid survivors were experiencing symptoms at four months and we know which is remarkable really i mean if you compare that with most acute viral infections the idea that nearly 50 percent have still got symptoms four months down the line is astonishing um at least 65 million people have been affected around the world with long covid uh and in the uk in 2022 it was estimated that um 1.8 million had symptoms of more than four weeks and 800,000 had symptoms lasting for more than a year. Um, And so I think it is a very real phenomenon, but again, just rather like the mortality. I mean, people just, it's got buried, hasn't it? It's the, Mm. I think people don't want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it. Um, And, and yet, you know, in our community as a whole, there are very significant numbers of, of people who've been affected um, and the commonest symptom is fatigue uh, but things like uh, impaired memory and brain fog is as many as 20 percent of those who are affected and um, it's again I think I think it's too early to see what the longer term consequences are going to be but you know if, if you've got a significant percentage of the po- population who are suffering with with long-term symptoms that must have an impact in all in in all kinds of of areas i think this this is part of the problem why uh, there's such a shortage of um so many vacancies in in many areas including health and social care because i think many health workers and many workers in social care have been affected by long covid and they're basically off sick or mm. and, and, you know, once sick pay, you, you often get mandatory sick pay for a number of months. But once you're out to that time, you're in real trouble because you, you don't feel you're fit enough to go back to work. Uh, you, you're not getting sick pay any longer and, and you may be forced into the benefit system. So I suspect that this is a kind of hidden, a hidden cost of COVID, which is yet not yet been fully recognised. I remember there
1: was debate as this was starting to emerge about what exactly long COVID was, if it is indeed one thing, is it the kind of complex cocktail of symptoms of this completely novel virus that the human body has never really experienced before, or was it more akin to, you know, this is controversial, but more akin to something like ME or chronic fatigue, which is, you know, has elements of kind of a psychosomatic illness and is, um, you know, has, doesn't have a single kind of physiological cause. Do you know if the scientists or the doctors have made any progress in kind of untangling what exactly is behind long COVID?
0: Well, I, I think it's a really interesting question. And undoubtedly, whereas so-called ME uh, was a bit of a Cinderella topic and, and most uh, medics steered clear of it, uh, long COVID uh, is a much more, uh researched area a lot of a lot of people are doing research in it and undoubtedly they are finding evidence of immune activation uh, you know of, of organic markers in the blood which are definitely different i i remember hearing someone say that you know somebody who had long covid and they were asked to do some sort of limited exercise and then blood tests were taken just to look at the level of metabolic stress and so on. And they said, we're getting the same level of metabolic stress that you would normally see in someone who's run a marathon. And yet this person has just walked up the street. Um, So I I think there is much more hard uh, evidence of inflammatory activation and process however having said that the interesting thing is that the symptomatology is indeed very similar to what has previously been described as me and therefore uh, precisely what the relationship is between long covid and me is i think is still is still unclear um and it's it's close to home for me because last year i developed symptomatic covid I've, I've felt absolutely awful. I went to bed. I had this terrible headache. I felt, you know, a fever, felt ghastly. The symptoms, the acute symptoms lasted a few days. I gradually got better. And then for, for the following two or three weeks, I felt absolutely awful. And I had brain fog. I couldn't concentrate. My muscles were aching. I had one good day. And then the following day I felt absolutely terrible and I was suddenly thinking, good heavens, you know, this is long COVID. And maybe the rest of my life is going to be like this. And maybe I'm just never going to be able to do anything because I'm affected. I mean, thank goodness, as far as I was concerned, the symptoms just resolved a couple of weeks later. And I was pretty much back to normal. But it made me feel very sympathetic for uh, others out there for whom who, who didn't have that same kind of experience. Mm and there were fears weren't there about that you know the the long
1: term consequences for a society where potentially millions of people are kind of chronically unwell um and not able to work full time and things is actually it's not obviously it's primarily a devastating co- for the individual's concern but it actually has masses of consequences for us as a society you know in terms of how do we support financially and socially you know, if a, a sudden surge of a million plus people onto the benefit system who need kind of long, lifelong support, again, no one's talking about that. But is that was that a realistic concern, or have the numbers not not at not that scale?
0: Well, I, th- I know I think it's a real concern, and I think it still is. I mean, what we do know is that the NHS is far more overwhelmed now than it was before. I mean, the levels of stress that A and E departments, that GPs. Um, are reporting you know the numbers of people that are waiting the waiting list for this that and the other and i think it's a perfectly reasonable hypothesis that a significant amount of this extra stress is long covid um and and yet it isn't really recognized as as what it's doing to the health service and i'd rather suspect the same is happening it's not just a uk problem i, th- I think the same will be happening uh in many other countries around the world hmm Of life and death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.
1: I mean, the, I think the the strain on the NHS is probably, from my perspective, one of the most obvious and long lasting consequences of COVID. In that, you know, the NHS has always been creaking at the seams in this country, but certainly you know in the the few kind of particularly around the winter times the few winters we've had since we came out of lockdown it has been you know un- the data suggests unprecedentedly overwhelmed in terms of being unable to see people in, in accident and emergency quickly and uh, the, the the general waiting lists for kind of elective surgeries and treatments has soared it's now over 7.2 million people um, I looked at some numbers earlier before covid the number of people in the uk waiting to be seen for more than 52 weeks for first treatment, Um, it was about 3,000. And today it's 360,000 people Mm. waiting over a year just to have their first treatment.
0: You know, I I think it's extraordinary. And I think putting all these things together as to what... You can see you can get a kind of cascade effect, can't you? Because if you've got a lot of your staff off sick... Um, then you put extra load on the existing staff and then you get people who just resign and say, that's it. I'm not, I can't carry on. So now we've got loads of vacancies, um, within the health service. And, uh, so you do get these, these cascading effects and well, this is all a bit doom and gloom, isn't it? And, and then we've, <laughs> we've got the mental health issues. Um, and, and here it does feel to me like it was a kind of perfect storm that, um, you'd already got very significant problems going on, particularly with young people, you know, evidence of rising mental health, a lot of that related, although this is still controversial, but I think the evidence is increasingly related to social media, smartphone use, mm. uh, and so on. And, and then, right on top of that, you take that generation who are already pretty socially isolated, and you force them to have a lockdown and and i think that has again had very profound um effects long long lasting effects i think that's
1: right yeah i think one of the most concerning implications of covid and the lockdowns was you know how how negative it was for for you know, elderly people for people who live by themselves, but also particularly for children, you know, at critical points in their development, they're supposed to be at school. They're supposed to be out there in in the parks, playing with their friends, developing healthy relationships. And instead we took them all inside for the best part of year and a half and said, it's fine. You can just do all your, your, your learning or your development, or your relationship building through mediated through a laptop screen. If you were lucky enough to have access to one um, and yeah, is in the in a world in which people already were disproportionately likely to uh to be experiencing things like anxiety and depression. It's un- it is unsurprising that it that has had such a a negative consequence, and it's hard to know what you do about that. I mean, you know, I I used to feel really bad for people who were at particular ages during the COVID. You know, if you were doing your A levels and about to university, you just had that time, those two years, snatched away from you. And what do you do? You can't run the clock, but you can't redo your 18, 19, 20 years. Or or similarly, if you're about to go into secondary school, you can't redo that time. It's, It's gone.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think what's pretty clear is that in general, this theory of online school, you know, all the lessons will go online. By and large, it just didn't work at all. People, kids rapidly worked out that they could just switch their screens off and get on with their lives and they just didn't want to engage with online lessons. I think teachers, most teachers found themselves completely disempowered and um, with some notable exceptions, I, I think then it was just a, a, a terrible failure. And of course, in retrospect and, and here 2020 hindsight is, is uh, in action it it seems that it was a bad call i mean i think the worry at the time was that the schools were a kind of super spreader mm. phenomenon and therefore you know in order to protect the whole of the community uh the most important thing was to stop the schools but in retrospect it was a um it was a very bad call um because i think the damage done uh to to children's education to students and so on was far greater than the risks of spreading.
1: Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I'm not an expert, I haven't read the studies that that I'm sure I've looked into that, but it makes sense to me. And I think it's certainly striking looking back at the lockdowns and realising just how strict they were, particularly in the first for the first time round. And, and, and these are an incredibly blunt tool. You know, there weren't exceptions, sensible exceptions carved out for for people's particular circumstances it was an incredibly blunt tool applied u- uniformly irrespective of who you were and what was going on and, and i think certainly one of the lessons everyone every government has learned is 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 to be much more kind of nimble and thoughtful about how we impose these kind of sweeping quarantine restrictions effectively and 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 to be a bit more um flexible in in, in trying to adjust them to people's circumstances
0: Yeah. And I think the most tragic examples actually were in, were people who were dying Mm -hmm. um, and who were not even allowed, their loved ones uh, were not allowed to be present. I mean, in retrospect, that was just ludicrous, very, very bad decisions. Um, And uh, it makes you feel really both sad and cross that so many people died. um, And, without, you know, the people who are most important to them in their lives uh, being allowed to be there. Mm. And uh, I, I think the the risks to the community of allowing, you know, loved ones to be there at deathbeds, I think was just, uh, it was such a bad, bad decision making. and And it, I think it has left permanent scars. I think people feel angry, they feel guilty. Uh, there are all kinds of complex emotions which are caused by that.
1: I remember I did a piece where I interviewed some chaplains who were working in, in COVID wards and hospitals during the the pandemic and a large part of their job at various points did basically to become to be the people who would kind of sit and hold the hand of someone who was dying because their loved ones weren't allowed to come and visit them and sometimes they would be facilitating, you know, holding up an iPad in front of them to do a kind of final video call goodbye all you know through loads of masks, and and um, yeah, it's just heartbreaking scenes really to think about and just to try and imagine, let alone actually having to be there to be sitting and holding the hand of someone as they breathe their last, and and you're shrouded in plastic and they can't really see your face properly, and and you're a total stranger to them because their loved ones are stuck outside the wall of the hospital and, and barred from coming in. It's tragic,
0: yeah. i I think. One of the positive things that happened in the UK is that a decision was taken at a very high level that chaplains, hospital chaplains, were were to be regarded as frontline mm. emergency workers, and they were instructed on and issued with high levels of COVID PPE. And um, I don't think that happened in in many countries, um, where I think you know religious professionals in modern health services are often regarded as, you know, an optional extra <laughs> as people who just get in the way. Whereas uh, it was a remarkable decision that um, hospital chaplains uh, were able to be present uh, when people were dying. And, oh, but not only that, also supporting the staff and and um, mm. being someone to whom the staff could turn to. And, and uh, that was a very positive thing.
1: Definitely should we just touch on one last issue before we bring this 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 first part of our COVID retrospective to a close and that is again what at the time was a ferociously contentious issue that sucked up um hundreds thousands of hours of of radio and tv time and millions of pages of, of newspapers magazines and that's the question of vaccines um we did a series of podcasts about this back in 2020 as kind of winter of 2020 into the started of 2021 as the vaccines were first kind of being rolled out here in the UK and around the western world um lots and lots of questions that we were asking at the time about um uh you know how they were produced uh, should we ta- start off talking about a little bit about the kind of schedule there was accelerated schedules to get to get vaccines ready i mean it, you know it took remarkably less than a year between us going into to lockdowns so before we were starting to get the first vaccines for this completely brand new virus, which is a remarkable thing, but lots of people were concerned that actually corners had been cut and it wasn't safe. What does what the what does hindsight tell us about that particular question?
0: Yeah, well, I, I think the first thing to say is, I mean, people are almost a blase about the fact that a vaccine was available within uh, less than a year following the first um, reported sequence of the DNA from the virus. Um, but, you know, in context, that is absolutely mind boggling. I mean, before then, the fastest uh, virus for the fastest vaccine for a new virus had taken uh, three or four five years. And before then, it was often decades. So that the idea that you can have a new vaccine uh, within less than 12 months of it first appearing um was mind-boggling and and the reason it happened was that uh everybody down tools and whatever they were doing they they stopped and they said this is the single most important thing and if if we can make this happen and make it happen faster than uh, we will we will do that and the stories that came out were of completely unprecedented cooperation so cooperation between research labs who are normally competing and wanting to keep their own information to themselves but then also cooperation with the regulators so that you know normally i've been involved in uh, controlled clinical trials and the whole process of, of getting approval for a trial of of getting research ethics approval getting all the all the different steps takes months and months and months has to go through numerous committees and so on And and what happened was that all these different regulators and committees said, "Okay, we're going to fast track this. Everything will we will use exactly the same processes, but we'll make it happen overnight instead of waiting three months. And they did. And um, but I think in retrospect, all those concerns about corners being cut was simply not true. Um, And in fact, you know, to be fair, I think I was trying to make that point at the time. Um, that it was exactly the same process which was going on to test safety and efficacy of this vaccine. It was exactly the same as to test any other new new trial, new, new agent. And lo and behold, the procedures worked because it turned out that these new vaccines, all of them, all the ones that got released into the general public in the West, uh, turned out to have very high levels of safety and very high levels of efficacy, which is exactly what the trials had shown. And so, you know, we've ended up with well over one, two, three billion doses of vaccine have been. Uh,
1: given. 13.47 billion doses have been <laughs> yeah. administered globally, apparently. Is that
0: right? Wow. That's amazing. Is it 13 billion? And yet, when we look at the deaths and serious complications from the vaccine, uh, we, we're talking about handfuls. I mean, at most. Um, a few per million doses. Um, so I, I think, uh, yes, it isn't completely safe. and We knew that. Uh, but all those uh, conspiracy theories that this was completely, you know, untested, dangerous, uh, wasn't going to work and so on. All the evidence is that it has worked remarkably well. Uh, and so um, in terms of death, the evidence is even one or two doses of the vaccine basically your chances of dying are very significantly reduced compared to no vaccination at all hmm. and um and therefore there's no doubt that there are millions of people alive today who would have died uh, if the vaccines had not been produced and do you think we communicated that
1: well i mean we one in one of our podcasts we discussed the first kind of reporting around um, people who were having these very rare blood clots that were killing them, which was eventually traced to receiving one of the vaccines in particular, but it was unbelievably rare. I remember looking at this, there was a front page of the sun, kind of a splashy tabloid newspaper here in the UK, which, had a big front page saying, you know, 0.0000000000125% risk of killer clot after vaccine, (laughs) which, you know, I'm not normally in favour of the sun, but I thought actually that was a pretty, pretty strong way of saying, of reporting the news, the facts that yes, some people were getting, were dying of these vaccines, but don't let that stop you get the vaccine because the risk is so low. How, How do you feel in hindsight we did about Sticking to the truth, which is that they weren't one hundred percent safe and yet not allowing that to be kind of weaponized by conspiracy theorists,
0: well, it's a really interesting question, isn't it and i I think you're right. I think that the um the official professional journalists, both in newsprint and in television radio. I think they all maintained a pretty high standard of responsibility and accuracy. I think the sad thing is that they had less impact than the internet, social media, YouTube, you name it. Um, Because for whatever reason, people are more likely to follow the internet than they are whatever professional journalists say
1: yeah i think that's sadly true and i think one of the things we've been underlined by the pandemic is the power of the internet as people's primary communication and information resource today in many in many ways you know obviously people a lot of people still do sit down and watch the 10 o'clock news and the 6 o'clock news turn on their radio to get their hourly bulletins but extraordinary high numbers of people get most or all of their information from the internet. Um.
0: And there's lots of evidence, isn't there, that, you know, the disinformation spreads much more rapidly, much more effectively than than good news. I mean, you know, and it, it it's hardly surprising, isn't it? You know, you've got two headlines, you know, shock, horror, latest research shows vaccines are safe <laughs> versus you know infertility uh, what were all those conspiracy things it was going to do to us it was going to cause massive uh, you know health problems down the line it was going to um,
1: yeah it was microchips dad it was it, full it was of microchips, microchips from to bill track gates us. yeah
0: <laughs> but there was a whole big thing about fertility wasn't there it was going yeah. to uh, cause infertility because it was um and they were filled with other debris, um, microplastics, and uh, and so on and so on. So it is a real question, isn't it? Um, how you how you counter that if that's where most people get their news? Mm. And
1: so many Christians, not immune to falling for some of this kind of anti-vax sentiment and conspiracy theorizing.
0: Yeah, and, we, and that was one of the things we've also talked about, isn't it? Why is it that um, Christian people are seem to be even potentially more prone to uh, buying into uh, conspiracy theories about vaccines, about um, other health stories? Um, and and I, I think the other thing that's, that strikes me, and I think we're probably coming to the end of this episode, we'll come back to this next week, One of the questions is, there seems to be a surprising lack of contrition
1: Hmm.
0: from people, including some of whom were Christians, who perpetrated these conspiracy theories. Um, You know, now all the evidence is that they were false. I haven't noticed many people saying, well, we're very sorry we got this wrong, but we'll put our hands up and say we'll try harder next time. Pigs might fly. Yeah,
1: Um, in fact, what I've seen the opposite is that there's been some reporting and studies suggesting that the COVID conspiracy theories were a bit of an entry drug, and that some people got into the conspiracy game sucked in by their concerns around vaccines or lockdowns. And now that's all moved on, and they were shown to be completely false. They haven't repented and gone back to their old ways, but actually they've just pivoted. And now they're talking about, you know, 15 minute cities and, uh, you know, anti-Semitism and all and you know and it's like once you fall for once you buy into one conspiracy theory it becomes easier and easier then just to move on to the next one because they're all swimming in this big kind of soup of nonsense together and so actually paradoxically it's the 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 disproval of your conspiracy theories around COVID has has all that meant is that you've just people just move on often to to something else that is that is the kind of uh, misinformation du jour
0: and the sad thing is that reality testing uh, and and looking back and saying well was it true and did we get it wrong uh just doesn't seem it, it doesn't seem to work it doesn't seem it seems as though there's there's some kind of immunity developed to the truth
1: yeah before we finish there's a few more uh, outstanding things on vaccines we, we spent a lot of time talking about the christian ethics of of the vaccines which um people a lot of people were concerned about them because of concerns around uh, using fetal cells that might have been derived from a, f- a, a fetus that was killed in an abortion many decades ago, these fetal cell lines being used during vaccine testing. And uh, I know you were involved in debates with some Christians, you know, very well-meaning, thoughtful Christians who who thought that this meant that the vaccines were kind of tainted by sin and evil and Christians shouldn't receive them. You took a different point of view. Um, do you, Have you changed your mind on that one? Or do you think you got that one right in terms of proximity to evil and the greater good and, and those kind of arguments
0: well I, I mean to be honest I do think I think um, you know if, if it had turned out that the vaccines were completely useless or even dangerous and were leading to greater harm than good obviously that changes the kind of ethical calculation that you, that you have to go on you know but but I think as the evidence at the time was that they were highly effective and very safe. And that, that has turned out, you know, are we, I, th- I think we, we have to balance the the millions of lives that were saved, the millions of admissions to ITU that were avoided. Um, these are some of the factors which go into trying to work out, was it right? Was it wrong? I, I do think there was, a, a real failure in the pharmaceutical companies because um there was no need to use those particular cell lines that that had been possibly connected to an early abortion. There were other sources of cell lines which had no no relationship with um, coming from embryos or aborted fetuses and And in retrospect, it was a terrible lack of um strategic thinking. For the companies, it would have been perfectly... You know, they could have seen this coming. As it was, they walked straight into a terrible PR disaster and they could have avoided it. And so, you know, as so often, good ethics turns out to be quite good business as well. And uh, they could have avoided all that um, terrible backlash mm. if they'd looked ahead and thought about the possibilities. And it was also a failure of Christians because, you know... they. There must have been many Christian technologists and um, business people working inside those pharmaceutical companies, and yet none of them had clearly seen the significance of where the cell lines came from and raised a question and said, you know, would it be possible for us to find alternative cell lines? And And so I think there really was a failure there of Christians being salt and light within those pharmaceutical companies.
1: But isn't a counter-argument to that the idea that actually as you kind of mentioned, the use of these cell lines is, is really very standard. It, the vaccines were not the first treatments or medicines to be tested on these, you know, so-called immortal cell lines that may once have derived from an aborted fetus. Lots and lots of medicines that pr- lots of Christians have been quite content to take in their ignorance in the past have been similarly tested. And so actually, this was an issue. While it is, you know, it's a legitimate point of ethics to debate, it, it was also been slightly used in the way, in the vaccine debate, in a way that it hasn't been used. You know, there has been no comparable Christian debate around other treatments and medicines that have been tested on the same exact same cell lines in the past.
0: No, that's true. But nonetheless, you know, if you were just asked, you know, here we are, we okay, we this is a cell line which is used all the time. But actually, you know, we don't know where it came from and it may have come from border feeders. Uh We've got other cell lines. Do you think, it you know, how do you as a Christian feel? Do you think it's of no relevance or would you say... Okay, let's I mean, if I was asked and I was working in that field, I would have said, why are we using this cell line? Um, We don't have to use this cell line just because we always have done doesn't mean that's not a good reason for saying let's use it for this new vaccine. So Mm. I I, I think there was a failure there. But um, I I think you're also right that um, particularly for people for whom, you know, the abortion lens, everything is seen through the issue of abortion, this this was a kind of uh, definitely an issue which could then be highlighted. And 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 you know, but very many Christians really wrestled over their consciences about this wrestling, you know, was this was this the right thing to do? It it, it did, you know, and, and I understand people desperately want to do the right thing. Mm. And um they they were deeply concerned. Mm. And just lastly, then the last little angle on on vaccines, we spent quite a lot of time
1: talking about this on the podcast a few years ago was about vaccine distribution. And, you know, there there was a period of time when, you know, Western governments were spending billions of dollars and a lot of time and effort to get as many jabs into their own people's arms as much as possible, while in sometimes doing second and third rounds of jabs, while while countries in the developing world, low income countries were really struggling to secure doses at all. Uh, and I just had a look on the very useful website Our World in Data, which has a good summary of the data on this, and it says seventy percent of the population has now received at least one dose of a COVID vaccine, but in low-income countries that number falls to just thirty-two percent. So still, even today, you know, when there is no shortage of vaccines, I imagine you know everyone in in the Western world is all, who wants has already been triple jabbed. Still, we have not managed to to fairly share around vaccine doses around the world, which I think is a is a real failure.
0: Yes, I think this is a very real failure um, and because there were plans, you know, there were international collaboration uh, groups had been made. There had been particular arrangements with big companies. I remember GlaxoSmithKline had agreed to make large numbers of vaccines available at cost deliberately for the uh, low resource countries. There were lots of well-meaning people saying, you know, we're going to ensure that um That poor countries don't lose out. But unfortunately, when push came to shove, what happened is this was such a big political issue for the rich countries that they just threw everything at it in terms of buying up stocks. They bought them. They massively over over overordered vaccines and all the well-meaning efforts to make vaccines available at scale. Uh, for people in low-resource countries, was completely wiped out by commercial forces from from the rich countries. And in retrospect, I think that was a terrible failure. And and again, it's interesting, isn't it? How much have you heard about that? I mean, that whole story has just been completely uh, airbrushed out, apart from for a few enthusiasts. So, I I think, sadly, uh, so often what happens with these ethical issues is is that it's the rich. It's a, it's a north-south issue. Hmm. And that, and that's, again, why so many of these excess deaths in COVID are actually related, are happening in, in low-resource countries, and it will be people who, who are not vaccinated. And we saw in the kind of final year of, of COVID in particular
1: what a problem this was because, you know, nowhere is safe until everywhere is safe. And, and we saw in this country, in the UK, you know, we would get a, a wave under control. And then it would mutate somewhere in I you know there was a i think there was a wave that started a new strain that started in south Africa uh, and then that got you know arrived on a plane and, and started all over, that was omicron or something started all over again in the u k and so it was almost like actually in even in purely self-interest terms, it was in everyone's interest to do a one big sweep and get the whole world vaccinated because if there were pockets. Where the virus was rapidly mutating and spreading from person to person, still, um, eventually it would it would escape our vaccines and it would, it would change enough, and we would have to it would be reimported and we would have to start all over again from scratch.
0: Yes, and and of course that is still basically the case. I, I think what seems to have happened is that the level of you know so-called herd immunity uh, in the rich countries, as a combination of the fact that so many people have been double, triple, quadruple vaccinated, plus the live infections that are going around, the vast majority of the population in the, in the uh, rich countries are now walking around with antibodies and are, are largely protected. The sad thing is that that isn't the case um, for many, many people in low-resource countries who who haven't had the vaccines, haven't had the same exposure to the Infection, and that means that it's still capable of uh, of causing very significant illness and death. Well, on that slightly gloomy note, I think we should probably we' we'll be going
1: on for almost an hour to bring this episode to a close. We've got um a lot more to talk about in our COVID perspective, including how the church did uh, through that period um, the ethics of how we handled kind of the NHS and other health systems becoming overwhelmed and technology plays into it and um, the rights and wrongs of balancing needs in, in lockdowns, whether that was too blunt at all. So do come back next week for our kind of part two exploring, looking back at COVID and questioning um, how we did. Um, uh, but for now uh, we'll say goodbye. There's lots to to read on, on John's website, johnwyatt.com, including lots about coronavirus um, for different perspectives. And yeah, if you haven't listened to the original episodes where we did a whole series eight or nine episodes long um, about covid when we started this podcast in 2020 do kind of scroll backwards on your podcast feed and have a listen a little time capsule of what life was like in the lockdowns uh, when we first started uh, discussing some of these these knotty and unforeseen problems um, but otherwise uh we'll we'll speak to you next week bye-bye <music>
0: Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.